Well, hello there, wonderful teachers. I want to invite you to an event we're doing this summer. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, so you have to be able to make it there, but it might be worth traveling for if you're able to. It's happening on July 20th and 21st, so that's over a weekend, and it's going to be the best two days for teachers. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn a lot about pedagogy and creative teaching and business. We have two fabulous guest speakers and we're even going to finish with an optional Kaylee. That's an Irish dancing party. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Just go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo that's dot com slash t-u-r-b-o 24 the numbers two four. I hope you'll check it out view all the details there and I hope to see you in Cincinnati in July. On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for, for music, music teachers. This is the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Hanton, and today we're talking about the foundations of successful preschool piano lessons. Welcome back, beautiful teachers. I hope you're having a wonderful week. Before the show gets going fully here, I want to ask you to do something for me. Will you come over and say hi to me on Instagram? We're at Colorful Keys, as you may have heard me mention on the show before, and I would love to connect with you in real time rather than just in this slightly disjointed podcast format. So do come say hi to me. Let me know your thoughts on the show, something you'd like me to talk about in the future, a resource you'd like to see from us, anything at all. Again, we're at Colorful Keys. Today's show, you may have noticed in your podcast feed, is a little bit longer. That's because I'm sharing with you the audio from a workshop which is about 45 minutes. So it's called Five Foundations of Successful Preschool Piano Teaching. It's a workshop I first prepared for NCKP, actually, a few years ago now before the pandemic, but it's still just as relevant today. So if you're new-ish to teaching preschool piano students, or you just want to make sure you have all your bases covered, then definitely listen in to this one. First of all, some reasons we might want to teach preschool piano. One of the main reasons that I got into preschool piano teaching was to stand out. I had moved to a new area, new part of Dublin, only a couple of neighborhoods over, if that, but didn't know anyone, didn't have any students there. I had been out of teaching for a year, so I didn't even have any other students who might travel the couple of neighborhoods over. And I was establishing basically a new studio in an area where there isn't a ton of money, okay? People don't have a lot of cash to spend. It's not a very affluent area. So I knew I needed to do something different to stand out because I was also surrounded by piano teachers because the thing about areas which are affordable to live in and therefore people who live there don't have a lot of money is piano teachers also tend to fit that demographic. So I was surrounded by piano teachers and maybe not that many piano teachers knew I needed to stand out from the crowd. And that's when I started to get into preschool piano teaching, and that's why. This was my very first preschool student. She is not a preschooler in this photo. She's age nine there. But Georgia and I started when she was just four. I lucked out with Georgia, I have to say, because Georgia was the daughter of a Montessori school owner. The owner of a small Montessori, who, of course, when she saw how great Georgia was getting on, passed on my details to many of the parents 
in her school. And my name spread and I started to get into teaching preschoolers more and more. Of course, this caused my name to spread to other demographics. It wasn't just about teaching preschoolers. It was about something different that I was doing to make me stand out from the crowd, to make things different. And because I was doing things differently, because I was teaching preschoolers, I was doing other things differently. I was using games. I was improvising more. I was teaching more by ear. And all of these things made me stand out and made people reach out to me because they were looking for something different from their piano lessons in general. The other reason that people often give for wanting to teach preschoolers is that they can finish earlier. I've mentioned that I finish earlier on Fridays than other days. A lot of us want this, right? We want to be able to have dinner with our families. We want to be able to relax a bit, to hang out with our children, perhaps, or to help them with their homework, you know? Preschoolers usually are free slightly earlier in the day, so it works out well for us to be able to finish earlier or just fit in more students if that's what we want. So today we're going to be going through the five foundations, as I see them, of preschool piano. Those are posture and pointers, patterns, progress and pace, parents and play, in all caps. So let's start with posture and pointers. And while I'm doing that, I'd love it if you could tell me which one of these five you think you might be missing out on or maybe not doing to its full potential. And this might change as you go through the presentation. So posture and pointers then. It's really, really vital that we start with a stable base. And when I put this presentation together first, I was a bit, oh, I went back and forth about putting this as the first foundation because I thought, people are going to shut off. They're going to think, this is a bit dull. I know the basics. I don't know how kids are supposed to sit at the piano. I get it. I was worried about that. But at the same time, it really is that important that I wanted to include it here as the first thing. To illustrate to you why it's so important, I want you to take a detour with me to an alternate universe, okay? In the universe we're going to, there's a little town called Grownupville. And in Grownupville, they have a favorite instrument, which is called the Tufprani. Now, the Tufprani looks pretty like a piano, but it is eight feet wide, and the height up to the keys is four feet, the key width is one and a half inches. So in imperial measurements for Americans. So that's what that looks like, those measurements there. So it's quite a bit bigger than a standard piano. To give you some context though of what that would feel like, especially if you're using the metric system like me, this is a grand tufbrani. This is what we would look like standing next to it. Right? So can you imagine sitting up on that stool? Your feet would be dangling you'd be kind of perched on the edge of it, you'd be trying to reach the keys, and also reaching side to side would make you nearly fall off that stool, right? This is the dimensions of a preschooler with a piano. This is how these things fit together. And when we're teaching older students, we can kind of get away with maybe not always having an adjustable bench or having some sort of rope together system or not having something for their feet. But for preschool students, these are essential. And I have made this mistake. I've made do with stuff and it doesn't work. It's not fair to them. It's not fair to their progress. And you have to keep thinking back to what you would feel like at the Tufbrani anytime you want to make a compromise here. So at the very minimum, you need an adjustable bench or something very stable to put on top of your bench. 
okay? So it can't be something that wobbles, it can't be cushions. And I know, I know this is difficult, and I know it's especially difficult if you're teaching in students' homes. We don't have control over the environments, do we? But we have to insist on this. We can't compromise. You must have that adjustable bench. You must have something to put on it if it's not adjustable that is extremely stable. You must have a footstool or a pedal extender. Now, if you get into teaching preschoolers in a major way, I'd recommend that you invest in the pedal extender. I know it's an investment, and trust me, if you're over in the US or Canada, you don't know how big an investment it is to get one over to Ireland. It is not cheap, but it is so vitally worth it. The reason for this is that we're not only talking about stability, we're talking about the pedals. And it really isn't a big deal if someone starts at age seven for them to wait to use the pedals until they can reach them. Let's say most students can reach the pedals at age eight or nine. Okay, so let's say age nine at the latest, where they're sort of standing on a bit, half standing, and they can definitely reach the pedal and keep their heel on the floor while doing so. Okay, that's not so bad. A year to two years where they um, can't reach the pedal and then they're able to, and you know, it all works out. But if you have a three or four-year-old, you're talking about six years before they can reach the pedal. Six years of piano study before they can use the pedal. And it's just not good enough. If you're going to get into teaching preschoolers in a big way, I would recommend you invest in one, at least for use at your studio. I know in some studios they insist on them for parents. I don't do that, but I do encourage you to get one for your own studio. If you don't have one, you can't invest right now, fair enough. Get a steady footstool. Make sure it is genuinely high enough, though, because most are not. Parents will often come up with a bathroom step stool, and that will work for a seven-year-old, and it absolutely will not be tall enough for a preschooler once you raise that bench up to the height it needs to have their arms parallel to the floor. That's the basics. Probably you knew a lot of that, but I like to go over it just to make sure. Then we get into the finer details of preschool technique. And here I prefer to take a whole arm movement approach, use only one finger, develop the dexterity away from the piano and let them use more fingers when they are ready. And in my mini musicians class, my group classes, I pretty much leave it up to them to, independent of me, without me asking, to start to use their other fingers. They do it themselves. I don't need to prompt them. And it's magic because then they do naturally use their arm. They don't introduce crazy tension in random places, right? So this is my preferred approach, but I would at very least encourage you to do the one finger only at first, at least for a little while. And for me, it's maybe almost a year for some preschoolers. It depends on the child and how developed their hands are and how well they're moving with freedom. So to understand why this one finger only approach has become so much more popular and why it's what I advocate. We're going to go back to Grown Upville, take another detour. If you have your Tufprani test, so I sent this to you just with the link to the live video. If you happen to print it already, awesome. If you didn't, go back to that email and print it afterwards or take a look at it to scale on your screen and try to spread your fingers out over the keys. What you'll find is that it's, they're quite stretched out. 
if you spread your fingers out over those keys, you will feel what it feels like for a preschooler when they're on piano keys. And if you try that after this live webinar, if you haven't printed it out yet, then let me know what you think of it because it really is eye-opening. And when I gave this presentation live, I could see on some people's faces that they finally twigged. Five-finger positions are horrible for preschool students. They're just not good. They're not comfortable. They wouldn't lead to good technique in other places. And they might leave, lead to this. Yuck. I know she's spread over a sixth, but still. We've all seen hands like that, right? With the collapsing knuckle bridge. The reason I chose this photo in particular is because she's trying to do all the things we tell her to do. She's got her wrist up. She's got her fingers curved. But obviously there's hideous amounts of tension in her hands. And the knuckle bridge is collapsing. And no one could play healthily with that technique. So that's why it's so important to let students use one finger only at first, expand to other fingers as they're actually ready, and not stay spread out over five finger positions until their hands are actually able for it, but rather contract their hand in between playing. It also means that they'll be stronger readers because they'll have to move around and they'll move with freedom. And if you actually look at your own hands next time you're playing, I think you'll find that most of the time they're not actually spread out. You do contract them. When you jump around and move to different keys, you contract, contract even your fully adult-sized hands. Kathy said it's eye-opening about our tooth brandy test, so that will give you an insight if you guys don't have it printed out, to print it out later and give it a go, because it really, yeah, it shows you so much. And I worked out the maths of it based on my hands, which are small, okay? So if you have large hands, it might not be quite as much of a stretch, but I, uh, for once, it was worked out based on women's hands, not men. Like the regular piano. Anyway, give that a go later if you don't have it and see what you feel about it. Now, as well as taking this slow incremental approach at the piano, we're also building up awareness away from the piano. I do this with something I call the warm-up routine, which is swinging your arms by your sides, lifting and dropping them, doing wrist circles and shoulder rolls. You can adapt this to your different students and I use it in different ways with different levels of students as well myself. So I'll incorporate things that we're going to be doing in our technique as part of this warm-up. And we do this at the start of their lesson. It's a great way to get into your body, as it were, before playing the piano. It gives students a sense of the different movements and sort of a preview of them. So if we're going to be doing two-note slurs and they're going to need to be lifting from their wrist, then maybe we'll do some of those motions and practice them in the air. Building that into your warm-up routine is really a fantastic way to do that and to build, especially preschoolers' awareness of their different body parts. Honestly, most preschoolers don't know that they have wrists and elbows and shoulders. <laughs> they think they just have arms, at least in practice. That's what it comes across as. So if you've ever had a preschooler who lifted their shoulders way up to their ears when you ask them to lift their hand, that's what was going on there. They haven't really isolated those different parts and working on these kinds of stretches almost and movements together is very valuable. We also do finger plays a lot with, with preschool students. And this is the first one we do. As you can see, it's just about wiggling the fingers about. And then these gradually develop to incorporate finger numbers, to move different fingers independently and in various different ways so that they start to build that dexterity away from the piano and have it available to them at the piano when they're ready to use it. 
Our second foundational element is patterns. But we'll move on to patterns. Music is patterns, as far as I'm concerned. We have tons of oral patterns and visual patterns, and those tend to be the problem when it comes to preschool students. We have the piano keys, we have reading patterns, rhythm patterns, to name just a few. To understand this issue with patterns when it comes to preschool lessons, we're going to go back to Grown-Upville again. And I'm going to let you look at the Tufprani. This is what it looks like. Yikes, right? Anyone notice any problem here? Right. So, there are no comfortable, lovely groups of two and three black keys. But I'm going to give you your first note anyway. This is middle gamma. There's middle gamma, okay? And this is a beautiful sketch by the artist Escher. Any Escher fans watching live? Uh, Escher does these beautiful sketches all based on patterns, but really he was just here as a distraction. We're going back to the Tufbrani. What I want you to do is try to stare down middle gamma. Stare at the key you think it is, and now be honest when I tell you where it actually is. Okay, stare at the key that you think it is. It's there. Is that where you thought it was? And if you're thinking, okay, yeah, but our piano does have patterns of two and three black keys, and our notes are labelled with simple things like C instead of gamma, middle C is in the middle of the piano. Okay, number one, middle C is not in the middle of the piano. Sorry to break it to you. That's not actually the middle. Number two, they can't see where the middle is most of the time because they're so close to it. It's very hard to see when you're that close to the keys. And you have that smaller range that we talked about that we have at the Tufbrani. Number three, I promise you, from working with preschoolers for years, that some of them are seeing this. This is what they see when they look at the keys, because they literally cannot see the patterns of two and three black keys. So this is it. This is what they're seeing. Did you remember where the key was? I'd love to hear from someone who does. This ability to recognize patterns is why we give students things like spot the difference, where's Wally or where's Waldo over in the States, right? This is why we give students this. It's not just to keep them entertained for a few minutes while we can concentrate on something else. It's actually because we want them to be super pattern seekers like us, because that's what human beings are. Human beings are so finely tuned to patterns that we see them where there aren't any patterns. For example, if you've ever worn red socks to your favorite team's game of whatever your preferred sport is, and they won, and then you wore red socks again to the next game, and they won, and then you never ever wore any other color socks to any game ever again. We call that a superstition, but really what it is is seeking a pattern where there isn't a pattern. Sorry to break it to you, it's not real. So we are so highly tuned to be pattern seekers that we seek out those patterns where there aren't any patterns, and we delight in the work of people like Escher who mess with patterns and play with them. The problem with patterns when it comes to preschool students is that we are highly trained to be pattern seekers, but preschoolers are not yet. Everything in music depends on patterns, so they need hooks and manipulatives to help them get into the world of music. A good example of a hook is the memory palace. Has anyone ever heard of this? This is a memory technique. It's used sometimes by people competing in memory competitions. And yes, there are memory competitions 
One of the basic tasks in some memory competitions is to remember two, I think it's two or maybe just one deck of cards in the order they're given to the player. So they have to remember it goes king of hearts, queen of clubs, nine of spades, whatever, in sequence. Sounds pretty hard, doesn't it? And one of the techniques they use to remember all of these things is a memory palace. Now, a memory palace doesn't have to be a real palace. It's just a building or a place that you know well. So for me, it would be my childhood home, where I grew up, where my parents still live. If I were to use the memory palace technique, I would walk in the door in my mind, walk in the door of my childhood home. And let's say the first card is the Queen of Hearts. She would be sitting up on the bureau in the uh, entrance to my home and she would be blowing me kisses to remind me that it's the Queen of Hearts. And let's say the Jack of Spades was next. Well, then a Joker or a Jack would come flying down the banisters with a spade in his hand and almost hit me in the face when he flew off the end of the banisters. Okay, you get the idea. So you're associating these things with the home so that when you want to recall them later, you simply walk through your memory palace. In much simpler ways, we can give this technique to preschoolers. So that's what the dogs and frogs that I use in my mini musicians and tiny finger takeoff course and many members will say they use in their studios. That's what those are doing. They're giving preschoolers a hook, something they already know about, dogs and frogs, to associate it with the new thing, the groups of three and two black keys, so that they have that hook into it and it, they associate the familiar with the unfamiliar and bridge the gaps there. We also do the opposite kind of thing, and this is really a, a manipulative, where we're moving around the group so that they can see the repeating patterns and build them themselves. So we need to give preschoolers ways to interact like this so that they can hook into these patterns. And anytime your preschool student is struggling to master something, they're just not getting something, something is not going through, ask yourself, is there a pattern here that my super pattern-seeking brain is not even seeing is there that is preventing them from moving forward? It could be anything. Because we are so highly tuned to seek patterns that we don't even notice we're doing it. But the next time they have a problem, ask yourself if that might be it. So foundation number three then is about pace and progress. This is something new preschool piano teachers, even quite well-established ones, really struggle with. Because for preschoolers, time feels very different than it does for us. Activities are less predictable to them. We need to consider movement, and this might help you with your question there, Anna. We need to consider how movement feeds into things, and we need to mix up the difficulty levels of tasks we're doing. So let's go back to Grown-Upville again to consider this idea of pace and progress. Let's imagine we go to our Tooth Franny lesson, lovely Tooth Franny lesson with our lovely teacher, but every week when we go, sometimes the activities are 55 minutes long individual activities that we do with our teacher. And sometimes they're just two minutes. Wouldn't you feel pretty lost? I wouldn't be able to focus on this at all. If you never had any idea how long you were going to get to spend on something, how long you got to digest it and understand, and yeah, how long you had to figure it out. It was oscillating between those two and everything in between. I would feel so disorientated. Let's say also that sometimes in these classes you did some knitting 
And sometimes you went skydiving together. And sometimes you were washing hedgehogs. Side note, have you ever seen hedgehogs washed? Have you ever seen a YouTube video of hedgehogs being washed? It is adorable. You should look it up later if you haven't. But anyway, let's say you were doing one of these three activities. And you never knew which one it was going to be. Wouldn't you feel completely confused and bewildered and unable to focus on what you wanted to do? It might seem ludicrous to you to think that these three activities would be included in a music lesson or that activities could be 55 minutes or two minutes long. But this is honestly what it feels like for preschoolers sometimes because they don't have the categories, again, coming back to patterns, they don't have those categories that we have. They don't know that singing and clapping, marching around the room, dancing with scarves, reading things, working on sitting straight, that all of those things belong in a piano lesson. That is pretty random, right? And they're used to adapting to all this stuff. The world is pretty crazy as far as they're concerned, and they do go with the flow. But sometimes they're pretty bewildered by the stuff that we're doing and the length of different activities. So we need to make it as predictable as possible. Tell them the routine, repeat the activities often, and use visual aids where you can. These are the visual aids I use in my studio. They're little lesson plan cards. Members can find them inside the library. And I simply stick magnetic tape on them because I have a metal whiteboard in my studio. You can literally just put them on the floor. You could use Velcro. You could use whatever you want. The main point is that your preschool student is able to see these and that you refer to them together and that you stick with one pattern. It honestly doesn't matter what that pattern is. It doesn't have to be in this order. It could be way longer than this because you could be jumping between a lot more activities. But it should be the same every week, at least for the first semester, so that they can get used to the environment and how things run and feel more comfortable. If you've ever had a preschooler who asked you um, how long was left in the lesson or when mum was coming, it's not because they're not enjoying themselves it's because they literally have no idea. It's very hard for them to track. And telling them the time isn't going to help either. So this helps them to feel comfortable, at ease, and know where they are in space and time. With my preschool students, they love this. They refer to this. You know, in my mini musicians class, they're saying, we're on this now, and now we're going to this. They love being able to tell me what's happening, which is great, because they can take ownership of the process and stay focused. That's the pacing inside the lesson. The other side of this is the progress and how quickly we move through things over time. I'd like to encourage you to think of your lessons, your preschool lessons, as music rather than piano lessons. And all your lessons, to be honest, but more and more with preschoolers, that they're music lessons, not just piano lessons. Music is not just about reading, and neither is piano. And there's no such thing as too slow. So focus on the experience over the any markers that you may have for yourself or your student. To illustrate this, I want you to meet my student, Freddie. So Freddie started with me at age four, but a very young four. Freddie did not have the easiest time with reading or pattern recognition in general. He really did struggle with that. And so we had to do a lot of work in the beginning on identifying the piano keys, learning the alphabet, learning beginning reading eventually. That had to be taken very slowly. That doesn't mean we couldn't progress in other areas. It just meant that I had to continue to review that and make it fun every single week and know that it would come together in the end. 
while developing rock-solid rhythm skills, and I mean seriously amazing, by the time Freddie was five, you would have been jealous of his rhythm for any of your older students, I promise you. Understanding of tempo and terms used for different tempi. Freddie was great with vocabulary, so he learned, you know, allegro, andante, largo, all those sorts of words. Understanding dynamics, understanding them and the words becoming the most beautiful improviser. I mean, Freddie was just wonderfully musical when we improvised together. And he loved it. He was beaming at the end of every lesson. A few years before that, I might have been frustrated by Freddie. And he wouldn't have been beaming at every lesson because I would have been frustrated. And that shows no matter how much you try to let it, to keep it away from your students, they notice when we're frustrated with them or expecting them to move faster than they are. But I wasn't. I recognized that that was going to be a bit slower for him. And the other areas could be developed faster and focused on enjoying the lesson together. So anytime you are getting frustrated by your student's level of progress or their speed of progress, ask them, ask yourself, does the student enjoy their lessons? Are they making progress in any areas? And of course, with Freddie, yes, loves loads of areas, right? Just not that fast in that one area. And if so, just step back, have a little chat with yourself, as I like to say, have a little conversation with your inside your brain and remind yourself that with preschool students, you have the luxury of time. What I mean by the luxury of time is there's this alarm clock that's going to go off. It's called age 13 for most students. And the thing is, at age 13, they're going to need to play something that's going to impress their friends or they are almost 100% going to quit. Most students, okay? Now, if they start with you at age 10, you have three years to get them to play something incredibly impressive for their friends, or they're going to quit. If they start with you at age three, you have 10 years! 10 years to get them to that stage. So you can build these wonderful foundations and take your time with them and build a wonderful relationship without worrying about deadlines. Because even when there aren't real deadlines, there are sort of some kind of imaginary deadlines, whether we're creating them for ourselves or not. But there's usually something, some marker that we do need to meet because otherwise students are going to feel behind. But if you have all these years with your preschool students, you have the luxury of time and you can develop at a slower pace if you need to. So ask yourself, do you have any unrealistic expectations? Tell me in the chat if you've ever experienced this or if you think you might have any now. Carrie said, sorry, you must, might have said this already. Are these visual schedule cards available for purchase? Carrie, these are inside the Vibrant Music Teaching Library. If you're not a member, I'll tell you more about it later and how you can get access to those. Faith, yes, you can access the replay. There's always a replay link sent out after the webinar. Okay, let me know about your unrealistic expectations while I move along to our next foundational concept, and that's parents. So how involved should parents be? Now, I can't answer this question, and as you can see there, I just have a bunch of questions to answer it, because it really is a piece of string question. It's not something I can answer definitively, but it is something I can help you think through. So how much practice are you going to expect? How much progress are they going to expect? These two things go hand in hand. What are your goals and why are they taking lessons? Those are the questions you need to ask yourself. The speed of progress with all students, but in particular with younger students, is directly, incredibly predictably related to parent support. 
But that doesn't mean that slow progress is bad. As I said, we have that luxury of time. We just have to be realistic and upfront about our expectations. So how much practice are you going to expect? Is the parent going to sit in on lessons? Or are they going to sit out? If they are going to sit in, are they going to take their own note? If they're not going to sit in, which parents don't generally sit in in my studio for the most part, then how are you going to communicate with them about what needs to be practiced and how? Are they going to come in for the last few minutes, for example? Or do you send detailed notes to them? Or do you provide videos? Because if you don't do any of that, we're being unfair to the parents who don't have musical training. And I don't want to see that happening. We have to make music open to generations of children whose parents didn't take music. Come up with a system, whatever it is, whether it's them sitting in or detailed notes or whatever, videos, and make it clear to parents how they're going to understand what needs to be practiced and how, and what exactly they should be doing at home. Not just practice this and this, but this is what practice should look like. And if possible, give them a choice. Not every parent wants to sit with their preschooler and practice every day. But often, that's their only available option if they want their preschooler to study music. And they know the benefits of that and they know it's fantastic. But sometimes they're going into it knowing that they don't really want the practice part and that they're not committed to that, that section of it. And so they'll nod along with you when you say, you know, that they have to help with practice and blah, blah, blah. But they won't really follow through on it and you'll be frustrated and they'll be frustrated and the relationship doesn't get off to a great start, does it? In my studio, I give them a choice. Preschoolers can start in buddy lessons, which are partial one-on-one, partial overlapping time, my standard lesson format, or they can start in Mini Musicians, which is a group program. Mini Musicians does not have any practice expectation whatsoever, no obligation to practice. That's it. The class is the class. I give suggestions of stuff they can try for fun at home, but they are not expected to practice. It is a weekly musical experience where they develop skills slowly over the course of a year or two years that they stay in the class. And for some parents, that is exactly what they want, but they just don't know to ask for it until they have that option. So yes, if you're not giving that option, that's fine. You don't have to teach group lessons. I'm not saying you do, but I'm just saying if the only option is preschool piano with half an hour's practice every single day, six days a week or nothing, some parents will go for that and not really mean it. And then you'll end up in frustration. So having different tracks or giving them the option of going down the street to a general music class and making sure that they know that's an option if they'd prefer no practice, I think is beneficial for everyone. A lot of teachers and parents will ask me this question or imply this question when we talk about preschool lessons. They'll talk about whether the child is ready or not. Parents will ask if they think, if I think their child is ready. Teachers will ask, you know, with this new student they're seeing, whether Maybe they're just not ready for lessons. Honestly, it's the wrong question. The question is, is the parent ready? I have never met a child that I cannot teach. And I know people will dispute with me, but if you are getting up and moving about and structuring your lessons carefully for preschool pacing, doing things developmentally appropriately, then there's no child of three or above who is not ready. The question is, is the parent ready? And are they committed to making this work? 
Tell me, do you do much parent education in your studio, whether it's for preschool students or others? And how do you think you could improve in this area or where do you need help with it? Let us know in the comments. Janice said, I have a parent with unreal expectations and you just helped me help her. That's awesome. Fantastic. If you want to share more details, I'd be interested to hear. But yeah, I'm so glad it helped. Sherry said, I've gotten stressed about parents feeling they aren't progressing quick enough. Yeah, I would just ask you, Sherry. Like, it could be the parents. Absolutely. That does happen. But sometimes we made it up in our own head. So I always like to start these conversations with myself by just saying to myself, is this even real? Does anyone else notice this except me? You know, if the parent is then pushing for it, then that's another conversation entirely. Okay, our final foundational block is play. As you may know, if you know me at all, I'm all about play. So I'm going to make a case for some serious silliness here. We need to get playful with all children. And the younger you go, the more vitally essential this is. This is how children learn. It leads to better retention, which means you have to repeat, your, repeat, repeat yourself less often, which is, you know, more fun for you. And it makes their knowledge more flexible. What I mean by flexible knowledge is if you've ever had a student who, for example, can identify notes on a worksheet, but has no idea what they are when they go back to the piano or when they're in the context of, you know, full music notation, that is knowledge that is not flexible. And games and playfulness make knowledge that is more flexible because you have to manipulate it, you have to work with it, you have to figure it out during a game or during play. Flexible knowledge is more useful and can be applied in different contexts. Playfulness is more fun for you and for them. And I believe teachers should be giggling through more of their day. So I know this isn't simple for everyone. And it's much like when we talk about creativity, people will say, well, I'm just not creative, so I can't do this. And first of all, that's nonsense. That's like saying, well, I'm just not musical. And I hate it when people say that too. Of course you are. Everyone's creative. Everyone can be playful. Everyone is musical. But I know that we need specific strategies sometimes to get us started. So I'm going to give you a few simple ways that you can make almost anything more playful. The first one is to tell stories. And for this, I want you to meet my student, Daniel. Daniel, quite fun, is the older brother of Freddie, who we met earlier. Now, Daniel started with me at the same age as Freddie started with me, right? So a few years earlier. And I wasn't as good of a teacher then. I'll be honest, I wasn't as good. I hadn't taught as many preschool students. Daniel was my third, I think. I didn't know as much about what I was doing. And I didn't prioritize our relationship. And therefore, Daniel didn't really like me. Daniel didn't have Freddie's problems with pattern recognition or anything else, really. Daniel was very quick, catch on to anything, no problem. Everything was easy peasy. But he didn't like me. And because he didn't like me, and he wasn't unpleasant, he was very polite, but, you know, we didn't vibe. He didn't like piano. If he associated the piano with me, and I was boring or lame or whatever he thought I was, it wasn't working out. Now, that all changed when Daniel brought a little toy dinosaur with him to our lesson one day. I taught him at his home, so he was just walking in, happened to have it in his hand, Went to put it away because he knew that wasn't allowed. And I said, no, I'll bring it over here. Tell me about it. What type of dinosaur is it? And I guessed. I said, well, is that a velociraptor? And he said, no, actually, it's a such and such. And this is why. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's it. Daniel loves 
dinosaurs. Daniel could tell me anything about dinosaurs. I mean, his knowledge was astounding. And he was passionate about it. He loved them. He loved to talk about this. So in my head, I went, this is it. This is my way in. So I associated everything in the lesson with dinosaurs that day. And then going forward, I related everything back to dinosaurs as much as I could for quite a while. Until me and Daniel started to get along and I could ease up on the dinosaurs a bit, but still bring them in to show him that I cared about what he cared about. Because that's what that is. It's not about kids being obsessed with dinosaurs. It's about any relationship where we relate about certain things. So, you know, when two adults whinge at each other about the rain, that's not just because they're whingy. It's because they're talking about what they have in common. And so by chatting about dinosaurs, you're appreciating what somebody enjoys, what they're passionate about. This is my further evidence, by the way. This is several years later where Daniel wrote this piece about a Tyrannosaurus rex when we had our animal-themed composing project. And yes, he asked me whether he could do an extinct animal, and I said, sure. Another way to get more playful is simply to move more. So any opportunity you have, get your students up off the bench, moving about, dancing, acting, playing, singing, whatever. Simple um, example of this is if you're talking about high sounds and low sounds, don't just ask them to answer you with high or low. Tell them to stretch up tall if it's high and crouch down low if it's low. Loud sounds could be lions and soft sounds are mice. All of this makes things more playful, more interactive, and again, leads to better retention. Singing often makes things more playful as well. Singing is used a lot in well, many different music education approaches, but including Kadai. And that's where I got a lot of my singing influence from. So I use solfa in my lessons. Um, We sing with that. We sing folk songs and we do singing games together. And the Kadai Hub is a great resource for those. Improvising is the ultimate musical act of play. And here I have to make a note that if you've ever tried to improvise with a preschooler and they have smashed away at the piano, Please do not fret, and please, please do not give up on that um, child when it comes to improv. Don't just say, okay, well, it's not for them, or I'll wait a while until they settle down. Let them bash away. They're not going to break your piano. It's probably fine, right? And if, you know, if it's actually in any way dangerous, of course, put some boundaries on that. But let them make loud, crashing sounds if they want to. Gently encourage them to use maybe one finger at a time instead. But don't restrict it too much and don't worry when they're not making anything that sounds like music for quite a while. That can happen. And sometimes they just need to test it. Sometimes they're purely testing it in terms of the sensory information. They just need to touch things, right? They need to check what they feel like. A lot of kids are like that. And improvisation is sometimes the only time in the piano lesson where they can actually do that especially if your instrument is quite different to their one at home. So improvise with all your students, especially your preschool students, and get it into as many of your lessons as you can, preferably all. And of course, play games. Games are the ultimate act of play, and I love games, and I have tons of them inside my library. 
It's me again, Podcast Nicola, coming in after the workshop. I hope you enjoyed that session. And if you're a member and you feel like you wanted to see the slides as it was going through or you want to rewatch it inside the membership, you can do that. The recording is in the training library. So I hope to hear from you soon on Instagram at Colourful Keys, either in private message or in a comment, whichever suits you best. And I'll see you back here next week. Vibrant Music Teaching members get five new games or resources at least every single month that keep them inspired and wanting to become a better teacher each and every day. If you want to join the best community of teachers online, you can go to vmt.ninja and sign up today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I hope you loved it and I wanted to pop on here one more time to remind you about our event. It's happening in Cincinnati this July and you can get all the details at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo. See you there.